This is Missing Alyssa, a podcast documentary series about the unsolved disappearance of Alyssa Turney, a teenage girl from Phoenix, Arizona. Alyssa has been missing since 2001. And this is episode 13 of Missing Alyssa. He said it was my fault that he shot. I made him do it. He never loved me. He owned me. That was Donna Russell, the woman who was shot by Mike Turney's brother, James. She shares a lot of very disturbing details about her life, so this episode is definitely not safe for all audiences. When I went and talked with Donna, she was in Phoenix visiting with family for a few days. She was eager to share her story, almost like she needed to lift a heavy weight off her shoulders. Even after so many years, she was visibly shaken and very emotional. The scars of that experience and so many others run deep, and it's clear that she never quite recovered. Before I let her tell you about the day of the shooting, here's some context to her story. When Donna was 14 years old, she fell in love with James, who lived across the street from her. At the time, James was 17. Donna came from an abusive family, and as often happens, she entered into an abusive relationship. My parents never wanted any of us, and they told us that every day of our life. What pieces of shit we were, they didn't care for us, they didn't want us. My mother slapped me in the face one day, and I said, I didn't ask to be born. And she slapped me. Had I not been abused from the time I was conceived, my parents didn't want us. They abused us mentally, uh, never loved us or wanted us my whole life. So. I accepted my my dad had a knife at my mother's throat when I'm four, a gun in her gut when I'm eight. So violence and hatred and craziness was like normal. So James treated me terrible and I was petrified of him. And so I just didn't matter. And then after I was 18, nothing mattered anyway. Nobody gets it. You're dead inside. I didn't like me. Nobody. Donna's mother was concerned that she was having sex with James, and she threatened them to go to the authorities. But prior to meeting James, Donna had been molested by her brother. At some point, she had confided this to James. According to Donna, James uses the knowledge he has about Donna's brother to stay out of trouble. Here's how. And so I had told James that my brother had been molesting me for years. My parents went to shit about it. So I thought, James loved me, so I tell him, and what does he do? He uses it. So he says, well, see, your mom's going to call the police. We're going to tell him your brother had sex with you. So in order to prove that, we have to have your brother have sex with you. I'm 14 years old. He stands there and tells us what to do. And it happens. He says that there's something about a man that if they haven't had sex, they could tell. I'm stupid. I don't know. So he made my brother have sex with me in a field so he wouldn't go to jail. I got it. I loved you. I did what I had to do. So what do you mean so he wouldn't go to jail? If my mother believed I was seeing him for sex, she was going to have me checked by a doctor. And I was 14 years old. He was on probation. One call, he went to jail. So he was going to use the story. My brother did it. My mother already knew my brother was molesting me. That wasn't a secret. So the brother did it. Then he said, this is the proof. I'm dumb and I buy it. At the age of 16, Donna became pregnant and married James. They had a total of four children together. 
the marriage was tumultuous and for the most part unhappy. He never loved me. He owned me. I was some kind of property to him and he could abuse me. So when he did abuse me, we pulled my hair. He was a horrible husband. He'd leave us home with no money, nothing. He didn't care. He never cared. At the time of the shooting, she was 28 years old and was planning to leave him. She'd been staying at her mother's house and she had already filed for divorce. On February 10th, 1974, Donna returns to her house to retrieve some clothes. Here's what she remembers from that day. So I go into the house and I, Mike had my kids and he took them outside. And I went into the bedroom to get my work clothes. James followed me, and then he started just hitting me. He knocked me on the bed, and he just beat me, beat me with his fists for I don't know how long. Just kept beating my head and my neck and my face. So when he got done beating me, I assumed he was done. I figured he got it all out. So I got up off the bed, and he went to the corner of the the bedroom because we never kept guns. We had children in, in a freaking what do you call it, nightstand. They were always in the closet where I was going, right? I'm in front of the closet, so I'm figuring I'm safe. And I went to reach for my clothes and started shooting me. He said, don't make me do this. And then he shot me. And then as I flipped, he shot me again. And then I'm laying on the floor. I can't move. I can't get up. Where did he shoot you? He shot me in the back of the shoulder. I would be dead if it wasn't for all the muscles I had. Right here. Shot me with hollow point bullets. They blow up. I have a big hole in my shoulder. So he shoots me. And the other And shot. then as I'm flipping, he shot me right here. It went in here and blew it up this side. The other shoulder. Yep. And then as I fell to the ground, he had the gun pointed right there. And it's like boom, 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 right? And then as the third one was going, that's when the door hit so hard, he jerked his hand. And it, I still have the scar. He skinned my ass. It's right here. Nobody knew it because at the hospital, they were too concerned with my shoulders and keeping me alive. But at any rate, so Mike's comes in the room because he busted the door and James hit his hand and I didn't know it on the dresser, broke his hand. Mike took me, this is what he, I'm laying on the floor and Mike pulled me up like this and looked behind me and he says, oh, you're okay. And sat me back down. Well, by then the neighbors came in. So they decided to get me out of there and they didn't want to wait on an ambulance. So the two neighbors, they stood me up because my feet worked. They got me on my feet. They, I did not know it till I got my blouse back, but I had blood from my shoulder to my waist covered, just covered in blood. I walked past my children. They're crying. It's probably the reason I'm alive is they got me to the hospital pretty quick. I was bleeding pretty bad and nobody knew it. I didn't know it. That I just remember this, the two men that took me in their pickup, they just kept saying to me, keep breathing. Just keep breathing. I had no clue there was blood. They immediately put me in. There's cops and firemen and taking my clothes off. A priest gave me my last rites. Donna talks about a cover-up, as Mike and his sister Shirley altered the crime scene and concealed firearms before police officers arrived. The sister lived about three blocks away. They had the sister bring the station wagon into our carport while they, um, while they loaded it with all of his guns and, and uh, reloading shit because he loaded the bullets he shot me with himself. And they had all this stuff in the station wagon before the, the police pulled up as Shirley is pulling out of the garage with all this shit and my kids on top of it. Why did you drop the charges when he shot you? Because I'm laying in a hospital bed being fed. I had no arms. You couldn't move your arms? No, he had nothing. He shot both of them. Both muscles were gone. 
So I'm laying there being fed. I have three children, right? Two things. One, if I put him in jail, where are the kids going? Two, they, he's going to kill me when he gets out because he blamed me for putting him in. He said it was my fault that he shot me. I made him do it. So when I told the police that I'm not prosecuting, and they said he might get six to eight years, I was scared he'd kill me when he got out. Sometime in 1974, James sent Donna a letter. It goes like this. Donna Marie Turney, forever. Have you found peace of mind or been able to sleep yet? I sure hope you have, because I haven't been able to. I hope your mind is open and you can see what the fruits of true love have brought to you. Just think what the fruits of true hate could bring to you. I sure hope when you find true love, you don't get in too deep because you could lose that love like I lost mine. Maybe you will go one of either way. Either let hate catch up with you, or maybe self-destruction would be better. It would be quicker. Love you always. Donna doesn't give me any context for this letter, and she declined to comment when I asked her about it after the interview. If I had to take a stab at it, I would say this is a not-so-veiled threat. If it was written after the incident, perhaps he's trying to intimidate her, to discourage her from pressing charges. I can only speculate, really. I could be wrong. Are you still scared? Yeah, I'm still scared. But not as much as you were before. No, because I don't care. Take me out. Are you doing me a favor? In preparation for leaving her husband, Donna had been working towards becoming financially independent for years. She was working at Western Electric, putting cotton around telephone wires. Her job required a certain amount of physical strength, which is why it was typically a man's job. She had to be able to lift up to 60-pound rails of wire. When I was divorcing James, which I finally had the money, great income, uh, uh, Western Electric, then you took both my shoulders out. So I always felt that's why both of them went first. I could be wrong, but he took my way of making a living. So I never could make a good living again. I think he wanted to paralyze me. I think he wanted me to be dependent upon him. Following the shooting, Donna didn't see her kids for 10 years. James told her that if she attempted to make any contact with them, he'd kill her and he'd kill the kids too. She believed him. She remembers what it was like to see her son for the first time since the shooting. I went to his graduation because Renee told me she was with me and I was petrified James was going to shoot us. She didn't care. I went and I was trying to find Johnny and I kept going into these rooms. And this first room I went into, this young man just kind of looked at me like, what's your freaking problem? And I started crying. I didn't even know what he looked like. Then he came out in the line. We waited by the line. And he was so happy to see me. And then the next day, his father threw him out. Bag and baggage. Wouldn't help him. He was done with him. Something similar happened with Jamie. So one day I'm at work. I'm, a, I'm working in a restaurant, Carol's. And this girl sits down at, right by the register. And she's just looking at me. And I'm talking to Johnny. She keeps looking at me. Well, what the hell's wrong with her? She says, Mom, Miss Jamie. So far, the story seems pretty straightforward. But here's where things start to get complicated. If you remember the last episode, Renee's version of what happened the day of the shooting, particularly the way the violence ended, differs from Donna's recollection. Renee remembers that Michael acted as a facilitator in the crime. She says she was the one who ran back inside the house and swung the door open, stopping her father. She felt that Uncle Mike was holding her back. 
Donna sees things differently. Renee believes he was. I don't. I will tell you this. He was protecting my children, keeping them away from us. But I don't, for one minute, believe Mike was a part of it. And I think in one of these letters you'll read that, um, that he was any part. Mike and I had a connection. Uh, he was a younger brother. Uh, I wrote him letters when he was in Korea. We were always close, and James was always leaving us together because I, either Mike had to help me or I had to help Mike or he'd help with the kids. We were very close. And then as Mike growed up and got older and older, and I was so um, upset with his brother, and he knew it, but he didn't want a family. He didn't want – he just – he was in a world of his own. But he was never mean or cruel. No, I don't buy for two seconds that Mike – okay, if Mike was in on it, why the hell did he come in and stop it? He had the kids outside. Well, why was he taking them somewhere? Well, he took them somewhere to get them away from me when James and I were fighting on Friday. But this is Sunday, the day I got shot. When I came back, Mike's there with my children, and he took them outside. Why do you think he took them outside? Because he knew we were fighting. He so knew. he just wanted to give you space? To yeah, argue. he didn't want the children to hear the shit that was going to come out. Because so you think he didn't know that you were going to get shot? I don't think for one minute he knew I was going to get shot. And if, if that was the case, why did he stop it? Renee didn't stop it. The door did. And unless you put me under hypnosis, that's my only memory that I have. But so I don't believe he wanted me dead. I think he knew James and I were going to fight, you know, and argue. And he just didn't want the children to hear it. And when he heard the shots, picture within three shots, he's, he's down the here, there, and outside, and he was there like that. And so, and then he, he got me out of there so things wouldn't get any worse. So, anyway, I don't believe that, that, uh, that Mike was any part of that. I think he thought James and I were just going to fight, and he didn't want the kids to hear it. But I could be wrong. I love my daughter to death, and I don't want to call her a liar. But I think that they got a few things mixed up. I don't think those. it's lying. I think it's people, not lying. It's especially in situations of shock, people just oh. remember don't always remember things the way it happened. I mean, almost never. I guarantee you she might have got to the door behind Mike and seen me. But I wouldn't have the memory that's so stuck in my head. And just not the memory, there's a scar right here. I still have where the bullet hit. The gun was aimed right. I saw the bullet come at me. And I heard the door, and then he did this, and it skimmed my ass. So that's my recollection of it. I'm sitting on the couch next to Donna. We're in her son's living room, and she shows me some family photos that she brought me. She also pulls out the letters she just mentioned. Back at my house, I read those on my own. They really made me think. I started to see a pattern. This isn't just a matter of spotty memories. I have copies of two letters Mike wrote Donna, one from 2002 and the other from 2003. In these letters, he makes severe and disturbing accusations towards his brother. He tells Donna James fits the profile of a sociopath. He even attaches a copy of the Diagnostic Characteristics of Antisocial Personality Disorder and outlines those he believes best described his brother. He accuses James of being sadistic, blaming him for heinous instances of animal cruelty. According to Mike, his brother tried to kill him too. He mentions a violent temper and oversexed behavior. This reminded me that in conversations with Renee, she told me Mike even accused her father of getting away with killing a man back in the 1960s. 
In one of the letters, Mike makes references to another potential murder from the 1980s. These are just rumors at this point, and I won't go into it until I get a chance to investigate further. Crafting an evil depiction of his brother seems to be the main theme of these letters. He complains that in their childhood, James hoarded all of his parents' attention. My mother would not let our father spank James unless we were all spanked, he writes. He explains James received preferential treatment and that his mother would always blame someone else for his bad deeds. He says so many people in his life filled him in on the bad things his brother had done. He tells Donna he believes James is to blame for the white trash reputation of the Turney family and contributed to the bad reputation of South Phoenix as a whole. Mike told Donna that James had incestuous relations with his mother, Maudine Turney, and his sisters, Shirley and Norma. He believed that uh, Maudine was having sex with, with James, which I believe too. She's the one I blame for everything. She's sick. That woman is sick beyond sick. I do know that James had sex with his sisters. He had sex with his mother. He had sex with his cousins. I asked Donna how she knew that to be true. Did she get that information from Mike alone, or has it been confirmed by other sources? She pauses. She said she wasn't sure. My impression is that Mike told Donna about these events and that she came to believe it was true from his words alone. What we know from the investigation is that he has fabricated intricate stories in the past and manipulated many people into believing these stories. In a letter written by Maudine herself, she seems to address some of these allegations. The letter is dated September 17, 2002, and it seems to be addressed to Michael Turney's physician or therapist. It's not clear because it doesn't contain the name of the recipient. I am writing this note to you because I am so upset over the letters I keep getting from my son Michael, your patient. He says he has been approached by clinical medical psychiatrists to provide info about the unusual Oedipus Rex complex scenario between my other son and me. If there is any such thing by any medical organization ongoing, I would more than gladly talk to them if it will help my son. The things that Mike is saying about me and the rest of his family are mainly figments of his imagination. In correspondence I had with Detective Summershoe, he wrote, quote, Mike's relationship with his brother is a bizarre one. At some point, they were extremely close, and they seemed to share some of the strange proclivities, like habitual recording of phone calls. But Mike later developed an intense antipathy towards James. I'm not sure what caused this break. End quote. The other goal of the letters goes hand in hand with the previous one. Michael distances himself from his brother's criminal deed against Donna. He wants to ensure that Donna knows he had nothing to do with her shooting and wishes to persuade her daughters Jamie and Renee of the same. He coaxes her with empathy for what she has gone through. He showers her with attention and kind words. In particular, he speaks of when her children were young and of the memories he captured on tape of them playing with their cousins. He promises to send her these videos. And then he abruptly circles back to the subject at hand. He had nothing to do with the shooting, and he wished Renee would see it that way too. Quote, Renee has her whole life ahead of her. It saddens me to know that I play a part in the hatred consuming her. I only wish I knew how to apologize for not preventing what happened that day. While preserving the facts that it was I who came to the door and took the gun away from James, the thought that she or Jamie could believe I could harm them in any way causes me much pain, end quote. In one of the letters, Mike even volunteers that he'd like to start a female violence crisis center in Prescott, Arizona. He'd like to send her story to Lifetime, he says. He urges her to do so too. The three-page letter circles back to the subject of the shooting several times, as Turney weaves it in between flattery and consideration. He sides with her, and tells her that he too, like her, was the victim of child abuse. He says that James mistreated him as well. Quote, His love-hate relationship with you was not much different with me, 
Only I had seen his out-of-control rages long before he met you. I only wish I had followed my instincts and past knowledge on February 10th, 1974. Maybe he would have shot me instead, or at least both of us. I only wish Renee would not think so badly of me. I blame myself for believing James could ever change. I never should have let him raise your children. I deserve their distrust and apparent dislike for me. I often pray James will attempt to kill me, so it will one day come to an end. I am not trying to gain your or any of my nephew's and niece's trust in me. I only wish to make as many credible facts available as possible. End quote. Regarding his involvement in the crime, Detective Summershoe told me the following in one of our email exchanges. Quote, Mike Turney likes to make much of the lack of prosecution, writes Summershoe, claiming it shows corruption. However, as a former law enforcement officer, he is fully aware of the laws back then. The fact of the matter is that Mike was present when James shot his wife and altered the crime scene before PPD arrival. I know Mike spent years after the event putting his own spin on it through letters and phone conversations with James's family. End quote. And Donna did indeed believe he had nothing to do with the planning of the attack against her. As you heard, she still maintains Mike, on the contrary, saved her life. Back in 2008, when she was interviewed by detectives, she spoke highly of him. However, even if her opinions about the shooting remain the same, her opinion of her ex-brother-in-law's integrity changed dramatically when she learned of the details surrounding Alyssa's disappearance. Mike, I knew. 1974. Saved my life. But he's not the Mike I'm seeing today. Because I want to believe he didn't do it. But if he didn't do it, where's the video? Where's the... The video of that day, why can't he produce it? It's really sad that he's not being punished for this or held accountable. He's the last person that saw her. There's a video I saw on Facebook where she's calling him a pervert. What do you people need to go after somebody like this? He is a sick, sick man. I don't know what he did the last 44 years. He's not the man I knew. Recently, I was standing in front of the home where Alyssa used to live. I was being interviewed for a local magazine, and we were doing a photo shoot when the next-door neighbor walked out into his driveway. An elderly man, he seemed a little irritated. He paced towards us, pushing a walker in front of him. I explained why we were there and asked if he knew about Alyssa and about the bombs. He said he'd been living there the whole time, and he was aware of both the disappearance and his neighbor's arrest. He refused a formal interview, and he doesn't want to be named. But I asked him a few questions before he changed his mind. What I learned was eye-opening. The neighbor said he'd never had any significant contact with Mike. He was more of an acquaintance. He says Mike always waved and seemed pretty friendly. One time he offered to help him fix his truck. Here's the shocking part. Turney's direct neighbor and his wife didn't know Alyssa was missing until the pipe bomb investigation that took place six years later. At the time, Michael just told him that she had moved to California to live with a relative. The neighbors didn't know about the disappearance until Turney's arrest and the ensuing news coverage. This raises some red flags because supposedly Turney was very distraught in May of 2001. But the neighbor told me he didn't appear concerned at all. Turney also said he spread the word to everyone he came across, so it's surprising to say the least that the neighbors weren't aware that a girl was missing. Even more alarming, the neighbor's children went to the same school as Alyssa, and the kids knew each other. It was like a light bulb went off in my head, and now I just can't stop thinking about this. It might seem like a minor detail that Alyssa disappeared on the very last day of school, but think about it. Had it happened during the regular school year, the news would have spread much faster. Students and teacher would have noticed, parents would be notified, word of a missing child would have spread like wildfire. I ran this by Detective Summershoe. He replied, 
I believe it wasn't happenstance that Alyssa disappeared that day. That way there wouldn't be inquiries from the school or other parties about where she was. Her school friends would be alarmed if she disappeared during the school year, but a disappearance during summer break isn't going to create as much of a concern. This was well-planned and carefully staged, end quote. Furthermore, that person might have been familiar enough with law enforcement to know that if there was ever to be an investigation, they would be ahead of the game because time was on their side. That's because the first 12 to 24 hours are the most critical in a missing person investigation. The longer it takes for an investigation to become active, the less likely it is for the outcome to be positive. Earlier this year, I interviewed Tad DeBias, a former federal prosecutor and expert in no-body murder investigations. The interview wasn't related to this case. It was for another story I was working on. DeBias used the following analogy. I liken it to the 100-meter dash, where the murderer starts at about the 30-meter mark. And it doesn't matter how fast you are, you're starting 30 meters behind. And it's very difficult to win a 100-meter race if you're giving your opponent a 30-meter advantage. Recently, I heard from some members of the IBEW, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers. I'm talking about the current employees of the exact branch investigators believe Turney was planning on blowing up, Local 640. They've been listening to the podcast and they're scared. I got on the phone with Michael Bregone, former treasurer and currently on the executive board of the company. He told me that a few months before Turney was released, a probation officer came to give them a heads up. Apparently, Turney is not allowed to be anywhere near their offices. In the meantime, we put up steel bars and put in cameras everywhere, you know, and we all have guns and stuff in case he shows up. I, you know, we don't know what else to do. It's funny, according to the way the cops told us, I've been the first one he killed because it was right where I sit. Is when I would have probably been the first one killed. He was going to come along the west side, and that's right over where I sit in the back. The information of his release hit local 640's 11 employees really hard. A few of them live in fear. One woman even retired early. Michael Bregon said they wanted my opinion on whether or not they were safe. I felt humbled by the trust they placed in me. I don't believe they should be concerned, and I did my best to alleviate their fears. Guys, we want to thank each and every one of you because it really seems like we're finally getting some traction here. Alyssa's story is all over the internet now. Just look for the hashtag justice for Alyssa across all platforms to see how many people are getting involved and how many are advocating for Alyssa. Sarah and I have been invited on dozens of true crime podcasts to talk about the case. The latest being Crime Junkie. They did a really great job covering the story in a factual and concise way. And they helped us spread the word about Alyssa and this podcast immensely. By the way, I find it really rewarding when people reach out to me about experiences that they've had in connection with the themes of this podcast, such as sexual assault, incest, or domestic violence. I'm so happy to know that I can affect people's lives and that listeners can relate to Alyssa's story and feel validated in some way, especially if they never got justice or found closure or even gotten an apology. Most people have kept painful experiences like these to themselves, and this secrecy has to stop. Hearing from other people who have gone through it makes them feel like they're not alone. Just this week, I got an email that starts like this. This feels really silly and unnecessary, but I cannot stop thinking about sharing this with you. Thank you for sharing Alyssa's story. I'll spare you the finer details, but Alyssa and Sarah's story is not unlike my own. I told people what was happening to me, but it was never taken seriously. I was told to stop lying or ask what I was watching on television to say such things. 
Eventually, my mother told me my brothers could get taken away from us if I did not stop, so I did. She continues, I spent my life surrounded by people who questioned my experience and by people who were frustrated by my desire to have answers. At this point, I don't know if I will ever even get a confession, but somehow hearing Alyssa's story has been extremely validating. It has felt like no one has cared for so long. The secrecy around incest and childhood sexual abuse extends far beyond when it immediately occurs. Most importantly, I am very moved by the effort that you and everyone affiliated with your podcast is putting forth for Alyssa. Sharing her story is not only bringing attention to injustice, but you are probably touching more lives than just mine. Things like this never reach just one person. Always feel free to get in touch if you want to share your story. You can message me on social media or at info at Also, Sarah started a petition on Care2 Petitions, and there are currently 58,000 signatures. It says on there that the goal is 60,000, but really she's trying to get 500,000 because that is a significant enough number that cannot be ignored by the county attorney's office. It only takes two minutes. The link is in the episode notes. I'd really appreciate it if you took a minute to rate and review this podcast on your podcast player. If you don't have time for a review, just throw me some stars. It takes a second. Do subscribe so you can be updated next time I post an episode. I post updates regarding the case on Facebook and Twitter pages Missing Alyssa. You can also follow me on Instagram under my name, Octavia Zapala. By the way, I forgot to mention that shortly after my interview with Michael Turney, the Phoenix Police Department asked for a copy of that to include in their case file. That's because Turney never agreed to a formal interview with investigators, and he hadn't given a media interview in over a decade. Thanks for listening. Missing Alyssa is produced and hosted by me, Octavia Zapala. Audio editing and production help by Raz Yellow. Our original music was created by Michael Thornwald. The artwork was done by Michelle Reyes. Missing Alyssa is distributed by Zcast. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.